0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I am your host, Ian Boswell. This morning, it is just our puppy, Winston and I, in the kitchen. My wife has left for school. I made her a little egg on toast, but for myself, I made some huevos rancheros, so that's some fried eggs on top of some corn tortillas. I'm not actually sure the best way to prepare huevos, but the way I do it is I fry up two corn tortillas and crack two eggs on top. Cover those eggs and let them steam. If they're not cooking quickly enough or cooking all the way through or to your preference, I add a little bit of water to the side of the pan to help create some steam. Quickly put the top of the pan back on, throw some cheese on there, help that melt, and top it with some avocado and salsa. It goes great with the coffee. If you have the ability to make a little Mexican mocha with uh, some spice and a little bit of chocolate, even better. But that is my breakfast. I hope you're all ready for another great episode of Breakfast with Boz, being served by Wahoo. Before we dive into the show today, I want to let you all know I'm giving you all another opportunity to join me on Breakfast with Boz for a New Year's special. I am reaching out to you, my friends and listeners, to ask for your 20. 21 Goals and Ambitions. You can fill out a very short survey over at wahoofitness.com under the Discover page under Breakfast with Boz. And in the header, you'll find a link to a survey. If you don't mind filling that out, I'll receive it. I'll go through the submissions and I'll reach out to get you on Breakfast with Boz for that New Year special. And speaking of goals and ambitions, the new Rival GPS smartwatch has just been launched. We all have a rival, a goal we strive for. Is it a record we're trying to beat, the competition we're trying to beat, the inner voice that holds us back, or an example you are trying to be for others? What is your rival? Share your rival with us at Wahoo by using the hashtag MyRival. In the episode today, I am joined by my friend and old racing pal rory sutherland i first raced with rory in 2010 at my hometown stage race the cascade cycling classic the first day was the first time we ever went head to head rory won the stage ahead of mark DeMar, and i was in third place hot on their heels i was a young first year professional at the time rory was an experienced rider who had been dominating the american circuit for a few years Rory and I's career took similar trajectories. In 2013, we both moved from domestic racing in the U.S. over to Europe. I went to Team Sky. Rory went to Team Saxo Bank. We've stayed in close contact over the years. Particularly this year, we have stayed incredibly close. Rory, after 17 years of racing professional, has decided to hang up his wheels and move on to something new. Rory and I, Worked a lot together over the years. He was at Movistar when I was at Team Sky. So we spent a lot of time together riding the front of the Peloton and then in the Gruppetto after our days were done. So today I'm catching up with Rory to talk about his retirement, talk about what it's like to have been a pro cyclist for so long. And we're going to be speaking a little bit about what he has planned next. So I hope you're all ready for today's episode of Breakfast with Boz with my guest. Rory Sutherland. I'm joined by an old friend of the Peloton and now my friend in retirement, Rory Sutherland. Thanks for coming on.
1: Of course, an old friend, I think you can take that a few different ways. <laughs> <How> <laughs> well, <like>. We've,
0: we've <laughs> been friends for a while, right?
1: Yeah, we've been competitors and then turned into friends and then turned into more friends. And I think we probably communicate more since you retired than, than before, to be honest.
0: Yeah, it's that's, that's true. We've been staying in pretty close contact over the last year and a half or so. But you've just finished your last race as a pro cyclist, the Vuelta. How was it?
1: Yes, it was hellish. Actually, it was harder than than I think any nearly any Grand Tour that I've done. Um, I guess in terms of how it was raced, I think everyone saw when you look at it on you know if anyone was watching the 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 Vuelta this year, especially having it in late October into some part of November, you know the weather's a little bit more difficult to handle, shall we say? You know there was a lot of wind, a lot of rain, uh, a lot of cold days. When it's cold, it's really cold, as opposed to August where. When it's cold that's actually manageable. But it was just ridden it was just raced full on every day. You know, that's one of the big things that we've uh, we were talking about in the Peloton with between myself and some of the 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 older riders in the Peloton is that, you know, it was just every single day somebody was was going for it or some team or sport director decided that it was is was their team's day to try and, you know, bring a break back and, and make it happen and yeah, look at the look at the stage wins and there's no there's no surprises in the stage wins at all.
0: Yeah, well you're thirty-eight years old and seventeen mm-hmm. years having raced at the professional level. That's uh
1: Jeez, yeah.
0: really <laughs> Yeah. I mean if you go back to, to the Robo Conti days, I mean that's you yeah. know, there are riders who, you know, Evena poles, what, maybe three, he was three years old or four years old when you started when you started racing it's, well i been actually I,
1: I i moved to europe in 2001 you know so it's it's been even longer than that you know my first year was 2001 with the road bank under 23 team so that was my first for most people i think for for riders that probably lived in holland or belgium at the time on that team they were still at home it was still like a development kind of thing but for me it was basically like being a professional from the word go because I moved from Australia. You know, I, I picked up and I left, and I, and I moved to a foreign environment, and that's where I started my European, I guess, I guess, block and campaign. So that was yeah, two thousand and one. So yeah, some of the some of the guys in the peloton were were born around the year that I was that I started racing the under 23s
0: Well, and one thing that that you know I've always admired with you is you've fully committed to to the professional lifestyle. And you said you moved to to Europe in 2001 but then you you raced in Europe mm. for a bit and then you moved to the US and you raced domestically but you fully immersed in in American culture lived in lived in Colorado and then went back to Europe yeah. and you know sure. now that you're retired are you planning on staying in in Girona?
1: Yeah, you know, we the kids that we have, we have an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old now, which is pretty scary to think about as well. And they've known nothing nothing else than being here. You know, we moved here when my our son was just turned 4. So he has no memories of, I guess, that, those first few years of being in the in the US, being in Colorado. And our daughter knows nothing else. You know, this is home for for her. You know, they're completely integrated into the community. They they feel Catalan. They they speak the you know they speak three languages fluently, and they have a great education system here and a great lifestyle. And my wife and I, Shana, we. You know, We've sat down many times and discussed what we're going to do when I, when I do finally retire. And I think the longer we stayed here, the more that integration happened uh, and the more that we appreciated, I guess, where we live and, and the things that we're able to do here and, and realized that this is, this is a lifestyle that, that we love. We have this, you know, the other benefit of, is, of it is that, that my wife's family is in the United States and my family's in Australia. So where do you go? You know, you have to pick one direction to go, and it's like, well, we may as well stay in the middle, eh?
0: <laughs> halfway between, well, a long way from both, but it's a long way from both, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. equally divided. Well, I mean, yeah. when, you, when you when you moved to the you know the European continent in two thousand and one, did you mm-hmm. have this plan of like, you know, I mean, to be in this day and age, to race until you're thirty eight is, you oh know, man, that's a long that's a long career. Did you anticipate having raced so long, or was it like, I'm going to go to Europe, I'm going to race for? you know, as long as I can, then I'm going to move back to Australia and kind of settle into a, into a normal life. Was this something you anticipated when you were, you know, just a young buck?
1: Yeah. You know, it's difficult because I think that's all all you see when you're at that age is, is, is now you're not looking ahead. It's why I think a lot of, a lot of young people or young riders, you, you don't put you don't put money into into pension funds. You know, you don't put money into 401ks when you're 18 years old because you, you go, oh, well, you know, at 60, at 60 or 65 is when I'll need it. So I've got plenty of time to do it. And you're more thinking about the now. You know, I'd never at that time. I always had imagined that that I'd you know do my racing in Europe and then end up back in Australia. That was that was, I guess, always the goal because that's where my mum and dad were, that's where my brother and sister were, that's where I was home. That's what was normal. But then the longer you stay in some place, that becomes the new normal. And I think that's really you know it happened again in the states when we moved when I moved there and I met my wife and we got settled in there. We bought a house. We're like, yeah, we don't want to be anywhere else. And then you know the opportunity, to, the job opportunity, came over over here. Here and then in uh, in Spain, so we thought, oh, we'll give it a go, and then when we're done, we'll come back to a house in Boulder. But like most things, things change. You know, your perspective changes, and kids adds a huge part of that. So there's no way I could have ever envisaged when I was, you know, 19 years old, living on a pig farm in Belgium when I first moved to to Europe that I would end up having a house and living in in Girona with uh, trilingual children uh, going to a school here and, and owning a couple of cafes.
0: Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, it's been quite the journey that you've had along the mm. way. And, well, and one thing that we've never actually really spoken about is your kind of move to the US. You know, you'd started off in Europe, you're racing with Robobank, which was, you know, one of the mm-hmm. biggest teams in, in Europe at the time. But in 2007, you decided to move to the US. And that's kind of when I was just starting to, I mean, I was yeah. I was much younger than, than you. And I think we, I think we first raced together in 2010 at the Cascade Cycling Classic. And I think, yes. And so, I mean, you were the, I mean, there's no question you were the dominant, you know, GC rider in the U S from, you know, Mm -hmm. 2007 to to 2012. What, what brought you to the U S rather than kind of staying in Europe? You know, was, was your goal always to try to get back to Europe or was it a very conscious decision that, Hey, I want to move to the U S at that period in time, the racing was you know, it was kind of the maybe the modern golden era of, of American racing. But what brought you to the states? Yeah,
1: so it, it's that's an interesting story. I turned professional properly professional in the world to a team in two thousand and five. And what a lot of people don't know is, you know, I went through first year pro there. It was not a great era in cycling. Uh, those times, it was a, it was a pretty dark days. What was happening? And then I did the Tour of Germany. I think in August, things have been going pretty well and i remember being at home and i got a i got a signed letter in the mail and it's from the you know from from saying that i'd failed a test i would failed an anti-doping test and i had no idea what i was looking at i'm a first year professional and i'm like what the hell is this because i've never done anything wrong before in my life in that room you know i'd Done other things in, in life. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to cheat in cycling. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't have any money. I was a a first year pro. Basically what it ended up coming down to was a tainted supplement that I think we, we got through the team. But at that time it was such a, they were. I guess the the World Anti-Doping Organization was so out for blood in cycling that I got a book basically thrown at me and suspended for fifteen months. Basically, kicks you completely out of cycling, uh, completely out of Europe. And I went back to Australia in two thousand six. I spent the whole year there working in a bar, working uh, in a bike shop, and just basically having fun uh, as much as you can when you when you've been shunned by the sport, and then. You know, I realised when I you know, I'm twenty five years old and I was like, All right, so what am I actually gonna do with my life? And and yeah, an opportunity came to to go back to racing. It was either come back to Europe and, and ride for a crappy continental team, getting paid next to nothing. And seeing all my peers in the World Tour teams, which I knew was where I was honestly deserved to be physically, and or I could go to the US and I could start fresh and and start a new a new chapter of something that was actually really exciting at that time. And yeah, so it was just happened to be a phone call that came from from Jeff Corbett uh, of HealthNet at the time, and he had been put in contact with me through, I think it was like. Uh, Nathan O'Neill's girlfriend or Greg Henderson was there at the time and, and they kind of put in a quick word for me and then all of a sudden I got an offer there and I thought, yeah, you know, let's give it a try and, and ended up being there for six years and and really loved it. You know, I really, really thrived on it and I think it act actually ended up being the longevity. Uh, that's why I have the longevity in the sport is because I had these kind of breaks in between. You know, I did the the block in Europe Block in the us is is completely different and then i come back to europe again when i was 30 or 31 and i'm kind of semi neo pro coming back to europe i'm an experienced neo pro and so you you know it's not like i'd done 20 grand tours by that point
0: yeah i mean and like i say you you did kind of race through the u.s through what was a relatively you know golden kind of era of you know there's a ton of really good teams the racing was competitive there was a ton of races around the country and not only Mm. was that happening you were you were winning i mean you were you were the rider who, you know, was leading multiple big stage races around the country, also competing against the world tour riders, you know, at tour mm-hmm. California, Colorado. Was it, you know, how did you decide that you wanted to go back to Europe? You know, you were, a, you were the the king of the U.S. scene. What was the decision to go back to Europe knowing that, you know, you kind of, we both actually went to Europe at the same time in 2013. Sure. You went to Saxo and I went to Sky but you're kind of back at the, the bottom of the totem pole and have to, have to prove yourself again.
1: Yeah, you know, it was kind of, when you, when you stick around anywhere for too long, it's, it's, that's exactly what it is. It's too long. You know, you start to get stale. Uh, six years in the same organization, six years sitting in a van in a parking lot somewhere in, uh, in the United States at some of these smaller races. It, it's fun and, and I really thrived on that. The, the simplicity of it when I first moved to the US uh, and that was like 2007, 2008. 2009. And I loved being able to, I think the community or the the group in a team was so much stronger. I guess the, how you connect with your teammates was different than what it is in Europe. Um, Because you're all in it together, you know, and and you're kind of racing with the same people day in, day out. And you're going through some of these experiences together as well. And it's not necessarily about money. You know, you're doing host housing uh, somewhere in Arkansas or wherever it was. Uh, and those are memories that are, that are really dear to me. And that really, I think, while I enjoyed all that, I really thrived on it. I learned I learnt so much. I learned how to, how to win, how to take uh, uh, pressure of, of a leader's jersey, uh, the tactics of it, and, and that kind of thing. Something that I never got in Europe. And I thought, you know, when we started getting closer towards 2012, it was like, it's either we're going to go on do this properly and or we're going to stay in the US and keep going and regret not being able to see what I could actually do in Europe, and that's where the opportunity came up, you know, at the end of 2012. And, and I think I think at uh, that point it was United Healthcare uh, was the team, and I'd kind of we'd kind of nearly had enough of each other, you know, we'd been through it for six years together. Uh, the organization and we and we'd both grown in different ways by the end of it. And the team was going a little bit of a different direction than what I wanted to go. And yeah, the, I got a call from Biana Reese at the time and, uh, he wanted to have me and the, the financial situation was good. And I think the big, the big push at that point was, you know, my, my wife was like, well, if we're going to do it, let's just go and do it and do it properly. You know, let's not do this half-assed. We're going to be here for three months and come back and then six months and come back and fly between the States and and Europe. She was like, no, no, we're going to go live there and do it properly.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that you see a lot of, a lot of like North American riders, same with Australians is the biggest struggle is, you know, their partner, their families elsewhere, and they struggle to kind of fully commit, but you were able to, you know, move over, and knowing that you know this could last for for two years, it could last for five years, and sure. turns out that it, you know it's going to last, last. That you are going to be longer. in Europe, <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, but I, I think I think with all that, I, I think I think it's an easy out for the for the U.S. riders and Canadians just to leave because it's not that far. Don't get me wrong; it's a distance, but you know when you are talking about uh, you know Spain or Italy or parts of France or Northern Europe to get to the East Coast of the U.S., it's super easy. You yeah, know, you can go. You can go back and forth a little bit. But I think you sell yourself short. I think what it does is it doesn't ground the rider into actually being somewhere and living somewhere. So you're always living out of a suitcase. You don't feel at home after the races. And I think, uh, you know, you were one of the guys that actually did do it and said, you know, like me, the full commitment, let's just do it, spend the winter in one place. And it really does change you in a good way as a rider. It it grounds you in where you are and it makes it feel like home.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's always one thing I I thought about, you know, you raced with, you know, some big leaders over the course of your career with, you know, Contador and Valverde. And one thing, you know, I've always kind of pondered about someone like Valverde is he's lived in the same place. He does the same training (laughs) rides. And I thought, wow, like, imagine that If, if every race you did was like a two hour flight from where you are. And on, you know, know, Sunday, (laughs) Sunday afternoon, you finish Liège-Bastogne-Liège and then Sunday evening, you're back home having dinner with your family. I was like, yeah. wow, that like that changes kind of the, you know, the dynamic of it. But you clearly saw that and realized that, hey, if we can create this for ourselves, then my career is going to be much more successful and going to be much longer. Yeah,
1: And like I said before, it's a it's a grounding, you know, it's, it's that you're grounded and you, you come home and you're home, you know, you don't come back to a, to a rental apartment with rental things in there. And, you know, you've gone to Ikea for two bits of furniture because you don't want to spend much because it's not your forever home. You know, you're always doing something on the cheap and you're always thinking about going somewhere else. Of course, it's a big thing for for the family situation when you when you have parents or brothers or sisters or a really close knit family community, uh, you know, which I have in Australia. But I think for Australians, it's a little different because it is so far away from Europe that when you come here, you either when you first come to Europe before you even get a pro contract because you don't get one by just being in by racing in Australia. Um, you have to suck it up and you have to tough it out in the, the crappy situations. And I think that just, that, that builds people or builds riders into somebody you, you do become stronger mentally and more appreciative, I think, of, of the good times. And yeah, that's, uh, it, it seems to have worked out and kept me here a lot longer.
0: Yeah, well, over the last nine years, was there ever a point when you thought, hey, maybe I'll go back to Australia or maybe I'll go back to the U.S. and, you know, go back to a team where, you know, you, you and I played very similar roles in in the teams we raced for. We, you know, yeah. were largely domestiques for, you know, for relatively big leaders. Did you ever think like, hey, I'm, maybe I'm going to go back and have one more crack at, at trying to lead a team in the U.S. or Australia or somewhere else? Or were you... By the time you got to Europe, and had you kind of you'd been successful enough in the U.S. that you thought you know I'm ready to kind of use my experience as a as a winner to now help other people win these you know big races and grand tours.
1: I think that's where what really came for me is that, like I said as well, the the experiences that I had in the U.S. by leading races and taking the pressure meant that when I came to Europe and I was a obviously a smaller fish in a, in a bigger pond. Is that with that I knew what it was like to be a leader and to feel the, the pressures, or I used I would know what a leader would want. Uh, and for me, that's something I think that really carved out a niche for me in Europe. Is that I could I could ride with the leaders and I could do things for them that a lot of other people couldn't do because I understood what it was like to be them, albeit in a smaller. Market in the United States with less stress than what they have in the Grand Tours, obviously here. So I think that was a super, super important, important part to get to there.
0: Well, and having ridden for so many big and successful leaders, which rider did you enjoy most, or who riding for? I mean, you've been with Dan Martin, Contador, Valverde, you know, numerous other big riders. Who's who's a leader that you look up to and like? Wow, like I really enjoy working for them. I respect them. They respect me, and I really enjoy you know, our relationship?
1: I think uh, the first, the first being with Contador was amazing. It was an amazing experience because I'd never been near someone. That was like one of my idols, you know, that was this huge rider. And I'd just come back from, from Europe and he had no idea who, he, who I was. And, and that's understandable as well. And I was like in awe of this guy. Uh, and then to be able to be put into some races. And I think, it took a couple of races with him for him to realize, you know, what I could do for him and how how much I would go. I guess uh, to what level I'd go to for him in a race to make sure that he could win. And one of the one of the big things I had for him, with him was how eager and professional he was. He was just he just wanted to race every single day. Like he wanted to win, and he really wanted to win. There was no like complaining. There was no. Oh, I'm going to have a day off today or I'm going to have an easy day. No, he wanted to be at the front and he wanted to win every single day, which I thought was amazing because I definitely didn't have that. <laughs> uh, and then uh, moving, so moving to Movistar after that, I started working with Nairo and uh, and Valverde. And Valverde and I completely hit it off nearly straight away, even without uh, being able to speak the same language. Uh, and we're still very good friends. I, I speak to him still in the races. We joke around with each other all the time and you know, it's, it's a, it's a really good relationship. And he's someone who's very similar to, to Contador that, you know, now he's changed a little bit, obviously getting older, but he was just, every day he was switched on. He wanted to race. He wanted to win incredibly professional and just loved cycling. And I was, I thought that was super cool. Uh, Nairo, on the other hand is not somebody that I was good friends with. I wasn't, you know, we, we weren't on, on bad uh, terms, but I didn't like the way that he treated the people that uh, that was that were around him to help him. I just didn't respect it the same way uh, as what I did with with Contro He'd always say thank you. He'd always make sure that you're okay. Uh, these guys would check on you all the time. Uh, the same goes for Valverde. Whereas Nairo was kind of just like, no, no, this is your job. Go and do it. And he's not a bad person. I just think it's the the, the pressures he was under in his life. Uh, and then Dan's Dan Martin's a completely other. Kettle, kettle of fish, as we say in Australia, is just uh, him and I've got a completely different relationship where there's no no holes barred. We just uh, I tell him what I, I tell him my opinion, and he tells me his, and we just go basically like going straight for the jugular, and and it seems to work really well, and and there's a mutual respect there. So they've all been very very different leaders, but the most yeah definitely the most fun has been with uh, Alejandro and, and Contador, and the most rewarding emotionally and is is being with Dan the last few years
0: yeah well, and and you've always been and I think probably as you've gotten older and you know wiser you've always been a a voice of reason in the peloton, you know if it's if there's some ridiculous weather or some you know incredibly dangerous stage, you're know, like, why are we doing this? Do you feel like that has come with with age or just experience you know where does that kind of voice of like Hey guys, like this doesn't make sense. Where does that come from?
1: I think it's age, you know. I think it's age. It's growing up, and 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 it's. I've always been a very very vocal person, you know. If I see something that's wrong or I don't agree with something, I say it. And a lot of the time, when you're younger and a little bit immature, it doesn't come across in the right way. I think the older you get and the, the mature, the more mature you you get. You see some things in a different way, and you realise there's a different way to actually to get that point across and especially with the changing in the peloton, you know, the the older statesmen start to go and then all of a sudden there's there's less of the, you know, then you you become one of the older guys and you become the guy that all the team looks at uh to make decisions and and to help out in situations and be kind of that that person between management and and the riders to make things better.
0: Yeah, I mean cuz I'm sure there's there's been teams you've been on where you are probably older than than the actual guy sitting in a car driving behind the race. Pretty
1: close. I don't know. I've been older than one team doctor before on the on my on UAE, and that was hilarious. He was like a couple months younger than me, and I was like, "Wow, this is weird. Like, this is just this is just wrong." Sport directors, I don't think so. I think I've always been uh, older. I think I've always been younger. Sorry, than the sport directors I've worked with, which is which is lucky. But then. I remember last year in a race, I was in a room with with one of the Oliveira twins uh, on UAE, uh, a couple of Portuguese kids, great kids. And I realized that he was closer in age to my son than he was to me.
0: Yeah, that's kind of bad.
1: And that scared the crap out of me. I was like, okay, yeah. And I said that to my wife and she's like, what, how old is he, 12? And I said, how old he was? And she's like, oh, yeah, I could be his mother.
0: That's kind (laughs) of scary. Yeah. Well, when you look back over over 17 years of racing in, in Europe, in the U.S., you know, around the around the globe, really, what's, is there a season that stands out that was a highlight of your career? Oof.
1: It's a tough one because there are so many moments and so many things, you know, the, the racing in the U.S. was was truly amazing. I think 2007, 2008, we just, with HealthNet, uh, and it was back to basics. And I was there with, with Tim Johnson, who's still a good friend of mine, with the uh, Carl Menzies, uh, we just had this great group of guys together and we'd laugh and have fun and we'd win races together and we'd really go through experiences together. And that was a really important part of my life to learn after being suspended, to learn to love racing again and love racing and the people involved with it. That was a huge part. The other part was was definitely my years with Star. I think I really found for myself as who I was at that point in my career and who I was as a person that I fit into the to a role there that I didn't hadn't had before and I think I was valued. And I think that's what's incredibly important within professional sport is that, you know, when you're working for a team or an organization is that they value you for what you do and they see you for who you are because if they don't it becomes a and you've you've gone through this as well with with teams before. If they don't see you like that it's just different, you know, it's not as it's hard to respect management as to respect authority it's hard to it's hard to be a racer and be switched on every day and give your all when you know that you're not being valued and that's not a financial thing that's just a that's that's something that you go through as a person so the Star years have been amazing and then and then this last year uh, with Israel startup nation until now, you know, has been up and down with the pandemic, obviously this year, but, but the friends I've made here and the feeling I've got in this team is, is really, really great one. And what we just did in the world as a group of people that one of the hardest grand tours, but one of the best ones emotionally and, and the best group of people that I think I've been collectively around in a grand tour before.
0: Well, I was going to ask you what you're doing next, but before, before I do, I want to ask what's I mean, and you're, you've been racing a lot longer than I have. And I saw you mm-hmm. know, a change in cycling over the years that I was racing in Europe. What's been the biggest change that you've seen over, you know, the course of your career in Europe, but also how do you think it's going to continue to change over the next, you know, five, 10 years?
1: Sure. I think, I think we're in an interesting, interesting time at the moment. I think we've just noticed a big transition. There was a transition probably 10 years ago. Uh, where younger writers, I think, where, where a lot of the old guard and, and I guess the doping practices that everyone knows about, you know, it's not a, it's not a secret. It's been read about, it's been written about, it's been spoken about postal years, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we've all seen it. And when that started to peter out, You could see the younger, younger generation coming through, starting to win from a younger age. And that's happened, but then the old guard was always, you know, the, the, the 30 plus year old group was always doing well, winning grand tours, et cetera, et cetera. But now it's, you know, look at who, look at the age of the people that won the, the riders that won the Giro and the, and, uh, the tour. You know, and, and how exciting that was. Look at uh Liverpool. look at what Woutman Art's doing, look at uh Vanderpool, uh, all these young guys. It's pretty amazing what they're doing and, and it's obviously a huge generational shift and there's a huge shift in uh the team structures about how how important training is and I think you saw that at Sky. Uh, And they've obviously set the bar incredibly high and everyone's kind of tried to keep up and now they've been surpassed. But it's definitely an evolving sport. And I think that's probably one of the most exciting things about it is that it's, it's ever changing, which means that the person that wins can always change too. Yeah and that makes it super exciting for the the people that you, kind of you are doing it for which is the fans who are watching.
0: Well with no more 30 plus hour training weeks, what's what's the future of Rory Sutherland look like in the next couple oh. of years?
1: Well I've been home for 3 days now and I think I've had more conference calls than I've ever had in my entire life. In three
0: days. <laughs> Get used uh, to it. So
1: apparently, <laughs> apparently that's what's coming. You know, first and foremost for me, I could have taken a job quite a few teams offered me job as a as a sport director and and i turned all of them down because it's not something that i really ever aspired to do you know i've spent the last yeah 17 to 20 years anywhere between 80 to 150 days a year on the road and in hotels etc and i'm just kind of tired of that you know and and not just me tired of that my my family doesn't deserve that anymore either so you know the the part for me was like okay i'm going to retire I decided uh, I got offered to do another year with this team uh, especially with Chris Froome coming on board and I said you know what it's not fair uh on the the younger riders that could get a contract uh when I'm not 100% into it like I was before. Uh I definitely felt it was time for me to stop and you know with that it's like well you know what do you do next and number one is to to not spend as much time away is to is to give I guess the respect back to my wife and my family of, that it's not all about me anymore because it's been about me selfishly for for the best part of 10 years with well since my kids were born and so then it's about finding something that you know trying to find a combination that you can you can have a passion towards and at the same time you can spend more time at home which which i've found out is not as easy as it sounds uh because because all your experiences in you know professional sports and traveling and all this in in teams but uh there's a there's a few things that are happening now some of them I can't talk about yet because they're not they're not nailed down but uh I have I will be working within the the Israel startup nation team just in a completely different role than the team has had before um which has taken some planning and it's basically kind of what I said before earlier is that there's there's a huge just, there's a huge gap and it's becoming more and more obvious is that the, the sport directors are, are far more removed from the reality of what's happening in the race than they were before. And that's because the era that the sport directors were in, racing has changed like you said, it's changed so much. so it's not like it was before. You can't read a race like you could from a car before. you can't the, the expectations have to be to be monitored and, and changed accordingly. And that's one of the roles that the uh, Chell Carlstrom, and, uh, and, and upper management have decided to say, hey, can you help us with this? You know, can you help fill the void and be kind of a voice of the riders, a voice of reason towards the, the sport directors and the decision making that you bring us, you know, I guess it's the permission to have somebody who can ask the difficult questions from a different perspective. And a lot of teams probably don't like that because it creates something different, a difference uh, or changes. And they can't stick with what they've been used to. But I think this team—they're—they're open-minded enough that they—that's what they want. They want—they want to question things. They want to look outside the box, and they want to know what's—you know—what's happening in the world. Otherwise, you're not really—I guess you're not—you're not going with it. You're sticking with what you were doing before.
0: Yeah, no, I—I really like the sounds of that. I was over in Nice this spring before the pandemic, and I was riding with a lot of the Enios guys and I thought this would actually be a, like a really valuable position. Like you go on the, you're at the training camps with the guys, you're riding with them because people talk differently when they're out on the bike and they're, and then you can then, you know, not be a spy, but then report back to the team and be like, Hey, upper management, actually, here's how the guys are feeling. And, you know, not gonna tattletale but like I think we should try changing this or implementing this mm. because and you know, we just
1: and we've we've just we've just done this like yesterday, you know, there's the discussion of training camps and now with the pandemic it's so difficult. And some people within the organization, it's nothing that's wrong with them and they they want training camps and they think it's important that have you have all eighty people of the organization together. And I said to them, I'm like, hey guys, this is a great opportunity not to have a training camp. This is a great opportunity to to let the guys Spend time at home with their families without traveling, or do their own little camp, and, and really, you know, they, they still have to concentrate on their training. And, and maybe some of them in Northern Europe have to go to Spain for a couple of weeks. But you know, it's about getting rid of all the fluff on the outsides, and maybe that's what this pandemic has done within cycling is that it's created a more streamlined system.
0: Yeah, I uh, I completely agree, and I think, like you said, it's it's always evolving and always changing. Personally, are you going to keep are you going to keep riding your bike as much as as much as you desire, or is it something that you want to hang up on the wall and, and give a little <laughs> break for a while?
1: That's a that's a difficult question. I really I have no. The, I think the issue is I just came out of three weeks of of suffering in the Vuelta. Uh, And I just came out exhausted. And even if I wasn't retiring, I would not want to touch my bike for the next three weeks. You know, it was pretty cool. Yesterday, what was it? Tuesday. So it was, you know, two days after the, after the Walter and my wife said, Hey, let's go. It was a beautiful day here in Spain. And my wife's like, we dropped the kids at school and said, let's, let's go for a gravel ride. And I'm like, okay, as long as it's not a road bike, I can do that. Uh, and we went out on the gravel bike, and we didn't. I said I don't really want to go for long because I'm pretty exhausted. But I just cruised. I didn't have a power meter on. I didn't have a heart rate strap on. I didn't have a head unit. I didn't have a a Wahoo or a Garmin or whatever. I had nothing, and I was just free. And I could just ride my bike, and that was it. I could wear whatever clothes I wanted as well, and it was incredibly liberating. Yeah, uh, there's there's no locked into to needing to, to look at a time or a wattage or a power or a heart rate or whatever. And I was like, actually, this is really cool. I can enjoy riding my bike, which is something while I definitely enjoyed what I've done and I definitely enjoyed the places I went and the training, I loved it. I've never ridden my bike, just ridden my bike, you
0: know? Back to being a kid again. And that's uh, yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Well, yeah. Rory, I really appreciate the time and I hope that, uh, well, I'm sure we'll stay in touch and I'm I'm eager yes. to uh, maybe catch up at some point next year once once racing's resumed and see how this transition to retirement is going and kind of seeing what you're implementing over at, at Israel Startup Nation.
1: And, and what my weight is as well probably is one everyone wants to check in on and <laughs>
0: see,
1: see, yeah. see how elevated that is. I had that during the whole world. There were people saying, hey, this is the skinniest you're ever going to be for the rest of your life or things this is the last time you're going to see muscles on your legs and i'm like well i don't think it's going to be quite that bad but uh yeah it's going to be a different step and, and uh, but it's exciting there's a lot of exciting stuff happening and uh yeah I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to come on and have a chat with you and uh, and yeah we can definitely catch up uh, and see where we're at in a few months time
0: awesome thanks rory and uh yeah stay safe stay healthy and yeah enjoy some some more time at home with your family cool thanks buddy Well, there we have it, folks. Another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I hope you enjoyed the show today and my conversation with Rory Sutherland. I've already put Rory on my list of people to catch up with in 2021. I'm eager to see how he gets on with retirement and see what he's able to implement over at Israel Startup Nation. Some fascinating stuff and interesting topics to dive into next year. Before that, next week... I will be joined by Eric Fostfett and Reed McCalvin, two staff members that I worked closely with when I was at Trek Livestrong and Bontrager Livestrong. They have since left the Action Higgins Berman team, but they have spent an incredible amount of time working and fostering young talent. So I wanna speak with them and get some insight and hear their observations about how and what they see with the up and coming riders who are now dominating and crushing the world tour. So that's right here next week on Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo.